All right, if you'll turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to go back into the uh, study in 1 Corinthians. And I've talked about um, preaching, you know, through uh, the Bible verse by verse. And the reason I think that's important is because it helps us to learn to think biblically. So um, life comes at us and uh, we know what God thinks about the situations that we find ourselves in because we've learned to develop a biblical imagination. We've learned how to develop a biblical understanding, and the Bible says uh, that we're to uh, our, our minds should be conformed to the image of God and the will of God. So that's why we're going to continue to take this approach. In First Corinthians chapter number nine, the Bible says, beginning with verse one, there. This is a question that Paul asked them. He said, "Am I not an apostle? Am I not free?" Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? uh, Of course, the answer to all these questions is yes, yes, yes. All these things he's affirming to them about himself. And if you read underneath this, it's like differences. That's what you see. He's bringing up the fact that between him and the congregation that he helped found in Corinth, there's friction, there are differences. So we, we need to know that for the context. He says, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, your life, the fact that you are following Jesus, he says, has a direct correlation to the time that I spent with you, the 18 months where he poured his life out there with them. He says, I'm an apostle to you because you wouldn't know Jesus if I hadn't left home and come to you. That was the reality for them. He came as a missionary and he preached Jesus to them and they came into a relationship with Jesus by faith because of that. So that's what he's bringing up. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Yes, we do. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, James and uh, Jude, the brothers in Jesus' household, who now are itinerant preachers like Paul. He says, they take along believing wives. Peter takes along a wife who is a believer. Don't I have that right? What's he suggesting? Yes, I do. I have that same right that others have. So we can. what do you sense here? Defensiveness, right? There's defensiveness that is in this uh, conversation he's, he's having here that we get to look back on. Do we have no right to eat and drink or take along a believing wife? Or is it only Barnabas and I, he says, who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the graining, uh, the grain. Is, is it oxen God is concerned about? No, it's not oxen. He says if an animal is doing work, you don't put a muzzle on it so that it can't eat as it's working. So that's a, you know, the illustration he brings up from the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Or does it say it all together for our sakes? He says for our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
Implied answer, no, it's not a great thing. It's reasonable. If others are partakers of this ride over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure, endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? They may not have known that. But he, he says you should know that, that that's how it works. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He says, this is my calling. This is what God has you know, uh, put into my life to do. It's reasonable. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with the stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, for not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. He's describing just labels that people would have had about themselves, their identity. Some people were non-Jews, some were Jews, some were irreligious, some were very religious, he says, I myself am under the law in the sense that I grew up as a Jew and have this understanding. He says, but I began to learn to identify with all kinds of people because every person needs the good news of Jesus. So he says, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men that I, that I might by all means save some or reach some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for its timelessness, its relevance. I pray that your spirit will direct us as we look into this passage today and bring out truths that will be helpful to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think 18 years old is uh, much too early to decide uh, what you're going to do with your life. But at 18, most of us are trying to decide what to do with our lives. It's a scientific fact that you don't get, a male doesn't get a mature brain until around age 25. Did you know that? I mean, most of us, uh, if we think about our life, if you're older than 25, you realize that between 18 and 25, you did probably most of the stupid things that you were going to do in your life. I mean, that was definitely true for me. But at 18 years old, we are in a position of deciding vocational 
questions and that sort of thing, and we sometimes need help. I know for myself, at 18, at 16, my dad said to me, uh, school ended, I was 16 years old because my birthday is in May, school ended, and my dad said, you are not going to sit at home and watch TV, get a job. That's what my dad said when I turned 16 years old. We lived in Augusta near Highway 25 where I could go put in job applications all over the place, and I did that, and I got a job in a grocery store within just a little bit of time, and I went to work when I turned 16 that summer in a grocery store, and I worked ever since then. Since I, And some of you probably worked a lot earlier than me. I'm sure Varney worked from the time he was, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, like they say, but I know when I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I had no intention of becoming a pastor. It didn't occur to me at all that I would one day become a pastor. My early vocational life was not informed or deliberate. It it was like, I just didn't know. I got a job in a grocery store. When I graduated from high school, my dad helped me get a job uh, in construction. My dad was a heavy equipment operator. I worked at a nuclear power plant, Plant Vogel, out in Waynesboro as a mechanics helper, and I hated it. I did not like it at all, but it was, you know, my dad helped me get that job. And then after a while, construction waned. I got laid off. I went back to working at a grocery store for a while. I had a brother-in-law who said, well, you look like a hard worker. He helped me get a job in a metal fab shop. I knew nothing about being a welder and fabricator. And the best advice I got there were two words. A guy that was an experienced guy said, take initiative, take initiative. That was what my training looked like is somebody said to me, take initiative. So I was a helper to other mechanics that knew what they were doing. And I learned how to be in a, welder and a, a welder and a fabricator by taking initiative and paying attention. And, and you know, maybe a little more hands-on training about how to run an oxacetylene torch or all the stuff that went along with working in that environment. And after a while, I got a job at another place working for a company called Westinghouse. When I was 29 years old, by the time I turned 29... I had become a follower of Jesus in 1987, same year I met and married my wife. And after she married a welder, but now she's married to a preacher, okay? It was not in any of our plans. I went to work as a maintenance mechanic, and while I was there, became a serious Christian. Became a serious Christian. And so in the middle of that, we began to process the fact that there's more to it for our life than that, vocationally. It's like we, I had opportunities to speak in front of people. Closest I'd come to that as a kid growing up was being the class clown, okay? The person that disrupted the classroom and got sent into detention. And so it was never in my thoughts that I might stand in front of people and communicate about Jesus. It did, but in, in time, God began to lead us that way. I had a pastor in the church that we were members of, Brother Ron Hasty who's still alive, uh, well up in his 80s, who had about four preacher boys, you know, people like me in the church, that on Wednesdays when we had church service, he would bring us into his office and he would instruct us and mentor us and pour into us. And I know several of those guys ended up being pastors and working in ministry. It was an amazing thing for a church of about 250 or 300 people 
that he had that many guys that he was nurturing and pouring into and, and helped us think about what it meant. And it terrified my wife to think that I had a job with benefits and retirement and different things. And at some point, we were going to step away from that and, and help churches as a way of living, as a lifestyle. So we grew up in Augusta in... Uh, in 1992, I was called to serve a rural congregation in Sylvania, Georgia. You know, as far as uh, our upbringing, we were both kind of cul-de-sac kids, you know. We grew up in s- suburban Augusta, in neighborhoods, and here we are out in the middle of farm country like fish out of water. And I was bivocational, so I drove all the way to Aiken, South Carolina, to the bomb plant, they call it, to work for Westinghouse, and I pastored a church at the same time, 29 years old. And so from then to now, exactly half of my life has been spent in vocational ministry, either bivocational or fully vocational as it is now. And I say that to help us Think about what this passage is saying, that this person has been called by God to give himself to help churches. And he's got friction with people that he has poured his life into, and he's working through that in this conversation that we're seeing in the Bible. So the Apostle Paul is going to help us think through some of those issues. And here's what I, would, I thought about. It's entirely possible that somebody in this room today, God is leading into vocational ministry. I I say that because it never occurred to me that that was going to be my life or path, and yet here I am, standing in front of you. So it's entirely possible that somebody that's listening today, God could be working their life to call them into vocational ministry. And so he helps us think about some issues that relate to that, So let's look at the text. The first thing that we see in the first uh, part of this chapter is that he uh, describes to them the fact that being paid to do ministry is legitimate because there were questions apparently that they had. Is it right for this person to do nothing more than preach the gospel and yet receive income as a result of that? And he says, we just read it. The whole argument is saying, yes, that's entirely reasonable. So it's validated in his testimony. He says here, first of all, that he's free. You see that in the first verse, am I not an apostle? He says, yes, I am. That's I was called. They question that, and he's defensive about it, as we said, because of that. He says, am I not free? What does he mean? Is it not okay for me to speak about this in this way? And he's saying, yes, I'm free. I'm uninhibited. I can talk about this particular thing with you in just this manner. It's important for me to do so. He, part of the reason that Paul's apostleship is questioned is because he was not part of the original 12, right? When Jesus called his disciples, he called 12 people, and Paul wasn't one of them at the time. And yet he wrote most of the New Testament, when you apart from the Gospels, 13 epistles, at least that many, were written by the Apostle Paul to give instruction to congregations. And so he, even though he wasn't originally numbered with the 12 who observed the resurrection, he himself claims in the Bible to have had two encounters with the resurrected Christ. One 
was on the way to Damascus. You remember that Paul started out persecuting the church. He started out arresting and violently persecuting to the point of death people who professed Jesus Christ. Paul persecuted them. And while he's on the road to Damascus, he has a, this dramatic conversion where his life is interrupted by an encounter where he says, I saw a light and I heard a voice. And that voice said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he finds out it's Jesus. Jesus appears to Paul and he tells him to go to a, a city and uh, to, go, to continue on to Damascus. And there he'd encounter a man named Ananias and he would instruct him, and Paul is baptized, and it says that he had been struck blind, and after he, he uh, is baptized, something like scales fell from his eyes. And we don't know if it's a metaphor or literal, we just know that he sees. And not, not only does he see with his eyes, he sees with his life. His life is different now. There's a change that's happened where, he, on the one hand, he's on his way to persecute, arrest, incarcerate Christians, now he's preaching the gospel that he would have persecuted those people on, on, the, on account of. So he, he, that's one occasion, the Bible says. But he says in another place in Galatians that he went away to Arabia. And while he was in Arabia that Jesus came to him and he says, my gospel wasn't given to me by people, it was given to me by Jesus. So he, he affirms his right in his testimony and experience to be considered an apostle. And, and we see that, and you know, so his, there's this struggle, this tension that he's having with these people that we don't completely understand, apart from some of it is clearly immaturity in the, in the congregation because that's what happens. We come to faith in Christ as babes in Christ. And then we, as much as we commit ourselves, we mature and we grow. And it's a process that's ongoing. But there was this problem that they had. So it's validated by his calling, the fact that he's going to claim the right to be blessed by them through their material resources, and but which he you know says no thanks to, but he claims the right and he lays the foundation for our understanding. But he says it's also validated by common sense. He says, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Of course, if all of his time is committed to the gospel ministry and to uh, shaping and forming life and in congregational life, he says, I also need to eat and drink and have, like we would say, you know, electricity and necessities and if it were in our day. So his, uh, his defense is that a minister, being a minister doesn't disqualify anybody from having the same basic needs as anybody else. So when I'm preparing this week, here's how it felt to me like, this is so self-serving. But that's why I'm glad to preach through the Bible so you can't go, he just decided to preach that, you know, for his own, his own accord. No, we just come to stuff that's in the Bible and, and uh, we need to think biblically and understand how churches function. And so he gives us uh, the, these insights, but... Being in ministry, you still have kids that want to go to college one day. You know, we raised two kids that we sent to college, and uh, we still want to retire one day, hopefully, maybe. Ragged out, or ragged and worn out at the end, maybe. But we want to retire like other people do. All those issues are the same for anyone in uh, vocational ministry. To marry, to raise a family. He says these are valid needs. 
Paul was called a tent-making preacher or pastor and because he literally made tents, that was what he did as a bivocational uh, way of making his living. He, he made tents, and so we get the idea now of a tent maker. And as I say, you know, I've been bivocational. I pastored a little church that basically um, me having a full-time job allowed them to have a pastor. They couldn't have had a pastor if he didn't have some other income to provide and to be able to be there with them and to, and to preach the gospel to them and to help help the issues that they had as a congregation, spiritual formation happening in, in people's lives. So he, he uses the illustration here to say that um, he, he talks about a farmer. He says a farmer doesn't plant and not reap and benefit from what he's planting. He, he gives us several illustrations here to say the uh, guy that plants a vineyard he says, nobody goes to war at his own expense. I passed by some construction recently. Like I say, my dad was a heavy equipment operator. And one thing I know for sure is my dad never bought a bulldozer or a motor grader. He, he built highways all over the place. He brought to it his skills, and they provided for him a bulldozer and a, a dirt-moving uh, equipment because that stuff is uh, incre- crazy expensive. So this is what he's saying. He says, people don't go, a soldier doesn't show up and they say, okay, well, we're going to take your first three months' wages to outfit you. No, the, they are provided that because it's their vocation. And he's saying it's the same for people in ministry. To, uh, so he gives us some helpful illustrations. Pastoring is always work. I have encountered people who said, don't you just stand up there and get the inspiration? You know, isn't that how it works? Like, no, that's not how it works. Inspiration follows perspiration. That's what the, you know, it's like you work. You work to study and spend time in the study, so hopefully you are able to hear from God and to bring helpful ideas to people. And that's only an aspect of ministry. It's just one aspect is the preaching aspect of it. But he says here to them, that, you know, I think about that. Pastoring is work. I, I hear people sometimes say vocational ministry is work. But I, I don't know that it's um, more difficult than anybody else's work. I know it's immersive. In other words, you're, when you're in vocational ministry, it's immersive. You feel it all the time. There, you don't punch out and go away from thinking about people that are part of the congregation. You know, it's it's with you. But I, I know other people's work is immersive and difficult. So, But he, he's showing us here that le- there's legitimacy in paid ministry. He appeals to the Mosaic Law. He says that uh, if God cares for cattle, how much more people? He says, it is, is it only cattle God cares about? No, of course not. You know, I thought about the last week using animal illustrations. It didn't occur to me at all that we had animals in the... You know, I didn't think about it at the time, but I know God cares more about people than animals. That's what he says here. God cares about people. We're uniquely uh, made in the image of God, not that animals aren't important. I have a cat. You've seen pictures of my cat, right? We have, I love uh, pets too. But God cares about people, and that's who he has in mind here, is people. When he talks about the ox, uh, not muzzling the ox when he's grinding out the uh, the wheat. So it's not helpful to over-spiritualize ministry. It is spiritual. It's not helpful to over-spiritualize it. 
And that's what he's you know, trying to help them see and what we're talking about because life has realities. And he says it's validated this uh, call to ministry and the provisions that should come through their experience. So one thing I think he's trying to help them see is that he had spent a good portion of his life and time caring for them. And those are commodities in a sense. The time, everybody, I think most people would say if you try to evaluate your life and you think about what's important, time is as important an aspect of your life and things that you value as anything is. I know that's how I think. I think about the way my life is. And he says, look, I poured into you. I spent time with you. And that time, he is saying to them, is it's valid that there's a reciprocal expectation. Why do you resent that? That's what he's asking. Because it's a problem there. It's validated in the help that's been brought to, to them. So Paul declines their support. He's, he makes this big case to them that it's valid, and then he says, but no thanks in this situation. And I think part of that is that he didn't want to inflame the tension that uh, existed. But the value of the gospel to them outweighed every other consideration. He said also to a church that he ministered to in Thessalonica, he says, surely you remember our toil and hardship that we work night and day in order to be a, uh, not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So he's laying out for them uh, the same idea in Thessalonica that he was an itinerant missionary, tent maker, and that he saw that this was new. But he's laying the foundation in the case for others. He reminded or informed them that it was typical of those who served the temple. He would have had in mind, of course, in his experience, the Levites, the Levites, the people that were priests in the Jewish system, that they were able to eat and make their, they were sustained by their, their work because they were dedicated to it. They were dedicated to it. He says, therefore, it was valid for them to eat from the offerings that came into the temple. So I think all this is really clear. Then he speaks about Jesus in the 70. He says, our own Lord said this also. And I think you go to Luke chapter 10 for that, and you see that when Jesus sent out the 70, he said to them, don't take a bag with you. Don't, you know, Wherever you go, you stay in the homes of people, and you trust me, and I'm going to take care of you. And so uh, he, he said the workman to them, he said the workman is worthy of his hire. Jesus says this is work that is it's reasonable for people to care for you as you do it. See how self-serving this sounds when I'm up here preaching this? Secondly, choose a, uh, he chose a sacrificial path. He says this right is available to me and to others who are called into vocational ministry. But he, he shows them that he was choosing a sacrificial path. So Paul refused pay, and he says, my boast is God in Christ in the gospel. So we should be clear that it's not anything other than that, because he's said before, whoever glories, let him glory in the Lord. He quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, said, if anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And that's all he's saying, is that my boasting is in the gospel and in Christ. And the gospel is the most important thing. That uh, the, the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. 
You know, it's the, it's the centerpiece of any uh, person's life who's a follower of Jesus is that there's this intersection of our faith, just like he had that uh, encounter with Jesus. For each of, uh, of us, there needs to be a point in our life where our openness and our surrender uh, we encounter Jesus, we understand what He did for us, that He gave His life and, and died on a cross for us, and we commit ourselves to that, and transformation occurs. So He's just given us the incredible value of the Gospel in what He's writing to the believers here. And he He's sensitive to the reality that His life is involved in that, and He doesn't want to compromise the the gospel. I think it's easy for people who work in ministry to forget how critical the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is, and we can get so fixated on running the church. You know, the church has administration and, and leadership issues that have to happen. If we're not careful, we can forget that Jesus died for the broken. And we can get our, and not only preachers, right? Anybody. We can go, okay, this is for me, I show up, this is for me. But we forget that Jesus Christ died so that broken, alienated people, stuck and not knowing what to do, would have an answer and a solution. And so I think that's what he's helping them to understand, is that uh, you, can't get, you can't get sidetracked. He said, How, woe, woe to me. If I don't preach the gospel, woe to me. In other words, I have forgotten what God put his hand on me for if I don't point people to Jesus, if I don't bring them to the cross. Woe to me, he says. And he wanted to avoid the appearance of professionalism. I think that, uh, you know, uh, John Piper, I've got a book in my office called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And I think what he wants to understand in saying that is like it's easy to take the sacredness out of ministry. He says this is a sacred calling. And and so I think what he was careful to do was not lose the heart of what it means to be a, a called into vocational ministry. It's a sacred undertaking. But to be clear, so is being a stay-at-home mom. So is being a brick mason. So is whatever you do. You know, it's a sacred calling that God has uh, led you to and wants to use your life. And Paul saw the danger of doing sacred work without a sacred heart. I think that's what he wants to He's like, I'm going to keep the priority of being deeply in love with Jesus no matter what. My mind's not going to get clouded by anything else. I'm going to keep that, that focus. You remember what Jesus said to the, uh, one of the churches in the book of Revelation, Laodicea? He said, this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. He said, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. In other words, when you came to understand what the good news of Jesus Christ implied, he says, you, you were way different then than you are right this minute. He says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And I, I think that was what Paul wanted to stay away from, was losing that deep sense of calling that uh, came because he had experienced the forgiveness of his sins. 
I know, you know, my former work was in working with pastors. They will say about, uh, I was an associational missionary for 12 years. So I worked with 36 congregations in three rural counties. And they would say that you're a pastor to pastors. That's what the role was. And one thing that I knew is that many pastors would resign out of frustration if it weren't for the fact that they knew they were called by God. They, you know, they could get so frustrated in the work. Why? Because spiritual formation is slow and messy and open-ended. It's like one reason I like carpentry. I, you know, I've had that as a side thing is because I can drive the last nail or put the last screw or put paint on it and send it out the door. But spiritual formation is not like that. It's open-ended and messy and... You know, and, and of course, you are most responsible for your uh, spiritual formation, but I'm also responsible for your spiritual formation as a pastor. And so uh, people can get frustrated with that, and we'll only succeed if we know that God cares far more about it than any of us do. You know, that's the thing that helps me to stay tethered and focused, is the fact that however I feel, I know God cares about it so much more than me. And I know that God uh, has given himself, even when it's not obvious, and I think that was helpful for me to think about. It's not always obvious that God's at work, but God's at work whether it's obvious to you or not. So he's he's chosen a sacrificial path. He knew it was going to be costly, but he also knew that the gospel made it worth it. And then in the scripture here, he identifies with unreached people. So we think about what does it mean to have a calling, to be called. It, it is to be mindful of people who need Jesus, that he, he says there are people all around us, and he says, I identified with them to win them to Jesus, people that had dissimilar uh, approaches to life or views. You know, that's an important lesson for us today, where uh, politically people may be dissimilar to you. Do they need Jesus anyway? Of course, absolutely. So he says, take away the labels and the layers. And can you understand that there's a human being underneath that who has a destiny that they'll either spend an eternity with God or alienated from God? He says, this is the perspective that I have. It's one that we easily lose sight of. He says, my perspective is whether this person is irreligious, religious, whatever their affiliation or the other things about them that they would carry around as their identity or their label, he says, I just wanted to relate to them. Relate to them so that they would know who Jesus Christ is. And so we identify with people so that they can know Jesus. One of the most Calvinistic preachers that I know, a good friend, says evangelism is a search for the elect. In other words, his way of viewing what salvation means might be different than somebody else's, but he doesn't stop evangelizing, sharing the gospel with other, other people. And that's the obligation that we have. Is the command is to share this good news of who Christ is. And we identify with people without giving away our own identity. I don't know how some of you might be old enough to remember Bob Harrington. Is that name the chaplain of Bourbon Street, anybody? Okay, I'm the only oldest person or old person. Bob uh, Harrington was a person who knew Jesus Christ as his Savior and felt called 
to ministry on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And so he got sucked into it. It was like after a while, all the stuff around him got in him. You know how the Bible says uh, we're in the world but not of the world? The world got in him, and he crashed in trying to minister to people on Bourbon Street. And it's redemptive because at the end out here, he came back to Christ. But what Paul is saying here is I identified with people, but I stayed separate from getting pulled into the stuff in their life. He says, I maintain my integrity as a minister to Jesus, even as I ministered to people who were broken and uh, who needed him. So we, the, I love how one paraphrase of the Bible puts it. It says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered into their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. That's exactly what Jesus did, right? That's what incarnation means. He entered into their world. And so he, he was able to bring us to himself because he came to us. And here's a problem I see, folks, is like we get so insulated from the world around us. We forget, hey, the good news that came to me, that transformed me, that gives me uh, the hope that I currently have, anybody else in the world needs that same hope that I, that I need. We insulate ourselves. We live in our little uh, Christian bubble and we forget that there are people outside our bubble that, that need to know Jesus. And so he talks about, lastly here, this life uh, is a life of discipline and reward. He, ta- he, does, he uses some athletic illustrations to talk about this question of vocation and legitimacy of uh, ministry as a calling and he says that, you know, it, what he's been called to is like a person who's an athlete. My son was, uh, ran cross country when he was in high school. And we'd go out to watch. If, if you, it's a skill to watch cross country because they, they start in one place and then they run through the woods, you know, for a long time. So you have to move to watch them come. And then you see them coming and it's like, oh, my kid is like in third place. And he's got a shot. You know, and so it's three and a half miles, three, I forget what exactly the distance, 3.1 miles, I think, is a cross-country race that these kids are like pacing themselves and gutting it out. And, and every kid wants to be, he wants to cross the finish line and throw up first. That's what they do usually. <laughs> like they cross the finish line and throw up. But they're like, there is a... There's a discipline involved in this in the, this athletic endeavor. He says they're all laboring to win first place, and he says you should do likewise. He takes this whole question, and he puts it back on the listeners. What about us? What about you? What about your life? Because you're called to ministry like anybody else is. And I, I love this. There's this very interesting thing Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you, listen to this, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You should go read that and meditate. Luke 16, 9. Write it down, go back and read it. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself that when it, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into, some translations say, everlasting habitations. Here's what he's saying to us. Invite people who do not know Jesus into your home. 
Share meals with people. Practice gospel hospitality. We live in a post-Christian society now. You know, it has happened. The world is post-Christian in North America. How do you do evangelism? When I was pastor of another church, we used to go to neighborhoods and knock on doors. Cold contact. Occasionally have people show up in their underwear to answer the door and weird stuff like that. But lots of cold contact. I don't know that the world works that way now. And here's what I do think. The gospel obligation, is still, it still belongs to us. The community around us still needs Jesus as much as the communities did when I was knocking on doors. So how are we going to do it now? I think we've got to figure it out. And part of it is what Jesus was saying there. He says, use your resources now to bring people into connection with me And one day what's going to happen is in the kingdom, you're going to get invited to be with friends who you invited to be your friend. So we're so insulated. That's part of the problem. Is that We've got neighbors. My neighbor moved this week. It was sad to me because I had a relationship with this neighbor. They moved over to Chatham County to be closer to their kids' daycare. They had been in our home. I'd had numerous gospel conversations with this friend. Somebody moved in to that house this week. They moved out. Somebody else moved in. Frankie and I were talking. I said, hey, when you go to Publix, will you pick up a card and some gift cards? And sometime, maybe this afternoon, we're going to take a card over with our contact information and say, hey, we're your neighbor. We want you to know that we want to know you what we do now is move into places and put up privacy fences and forget about the fact that God wants us connected and knowing each other and having, you know, being witnesses to Christ through, through our life. I used to be so terrible at this, and it's still hard. But I know that's God's call on our life is to, is to be ministers wherever we are, not just me. I'm going to bring it in for Atlanta because I know we're about out of time. But here's the, the part of this passage that I think is important to us is just to see that the gospel matters so much to people. The good news of Jesus matters so much. We get so frustrated, frustrated about what the world is like. So bent out of shape about how broken and messed up it is. Well, we have the answer, folks. You and I have the answer. What are we doing with it? I, th- I think that's the question for all of us. It could be, you know, as we were having this conversation today, I said in the beginning that somebody that's listening today, may, it may be that God's call on your life is to vocational ministry. God's call on everybody's life is to ministry. Not just people that get paid to do it, everybody. Is that God commissioned and sent you. Is, as the Father sent me, even so Jesus said, I've sent you. But if it may be as you're, as you're thinking about your life that God's called you to vocational ministry. And we should be like Samuel. You remember the boy Samuel? He grew up in, uh, under this uh, Eli, the high priest at the time. And, and God starts calling Samuel. You remember what he said? To, hey, Eli said to Samuel, say, your servant is listening. Your servant is listening. And that may be what, exactly where you are today. Some young adult. 
that God just wants you to say, hey, your servant is listening. I'm serious. I hear you. And, and let God use your life if He's directing you in that way. And He does call people. But like I said, God has called everybody to ministry, whether it's as a career or not. And one essential thing that we need to do is practice friendship and hospitality in these days. Friendship and hospitality. And let God use our life to make eternal friends. Don't you want to get to heaven one day? Don't you want to have whatever the experience is of life after we close our eyes and death and know that your life impacted the lives of other people for eternity so that when you show up, it's like, these are the friends. These are the people that are here with me because I love them in this temporary life and, and was available to them. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to have a song and time of commitment. And I'll be happy to pray with you as we conclude this service. And um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the... You give us your word. And in it we see the lives of people and how you direct people's lives. And, and 